0: Hi, and welcome to Multi Housing News' quarterly podcast with National Apartment Association specialists. I am Laura Kalugar, Senior Associate Editor with MHN. As we near the end of the year, I thought it would be useful to look at what 2020, this atypical year, has taught us. It has definitely been a year like no other for the multifamily industry, with all sorts of uncertainties and rapidly changing situations. Paula Munger, the expert leading NAA's research efforts, has been closely monitoring the industry all year long. So I wanted us to get her insights into how the industry has performed this year and what we should expect going forward. Hi Paula, thank you for being with us.
1: Laura, nice to be here.
0: So what are your top takeaways from 2020? How would you describe this year?
1: Wow, there's been so many adjectives for 2020, but I'm going to try to avoid using the word unprecedented because I feel like <laughs> it's been used a lot. But it was very fragmented. It, it, you know, you, you had a very different experience based on what job you had, based on where you lived, and not just for um not just an economic experience, but Even um, issues with the the virus, you know, the virus would surge in certain places and not others. And some cities were subject to lockdowns and others weren't. And I I just think it was, yeah, overall a fragmented year, very challenging for sure.
0: And I know you've been involved in in many surveys and NAA has conducted monthly surveys since the beginning of the COVID-19 outbreak. You've asked apartment owners and operators how the pandemic has impacted the rental housing industry and all sorts of other questions. How have things evolved over time? What have these surveys shown?
1: Yeah, I think, well, we asked some of the same questions. Certainly we see our owners and operators more pessimistic as as time went on. Still, the majority of them think, think things will return to normal between six and 11 months. Um, But we did see more choosing one to two year time frame for, you know, quote unquote normal, whatever that means. But I do think they're transitioning into their new normal. They're keeping things that worked. We had quite a few small owners and operators who maybe were hesitant or just weren't quite adopting technology yet. And they were forced into that. So I think they're just, um, again, keeping things that work and kind of buckling up because it's probably going to be a bumpy year.
0: Yes, and and 2020 has definitely been rough, and labor market conditions uh, have changed, have have constantly changed in different markets and and depending on each sector. How does the year end from this point of view?
1: Jobs that were service-based or high contact, those jobs are still suffering. Um, they're, They're not back to normal. They are, as cases surge, we see restaurants closing again, et cetera. I know here in, here in the DC area, there are a couple of jurisdictions that stopped indoor dining altogether this week. So, so that's certainly concerning for sure. But you also look at, so there's, you know, the travel industry, hotel workers, airline workers, if, if you're, they're all impacted. If you're doing remote work, um, for the most part, you've been just fine um, on the past year. And then we, when we look at geographies, we have to look at it in a similar pattern. So it's areas that maybe aren't as diverse or um, they rely on tourism, meetings, conventions, et cetera. So as of October, that's the most recent data we have from BLS for for cities. We see um, places like Las Vegas, New Orleans, Los Angeles, Double digit unemployment rates, while the US rate in October was 6.7. So that's considerably higher than the average. New York, by the way, is really close behind that. And then you have the smaller cities, maybe more isolated cities. They don't depend on tourism. Uh, Salt Lake City had the lowest unemployment rate at 4.1%. Then we have Minneapolis, St. Louis, Kansas City, quite a few cities in the Midwest just performing better overall. So really, again, a fragmented labor market.
0: Indeed. And also, unemployment claims are are still above pre-COVID-19 levels. What does this mean for the multifamily industry?
1: It's also concerning. This is a very noisy data series, the, the unemployment claims. We look at it every week, every Thursday. We wait for it to come out and see what it tells us. But we also know they're having difficulty with um, the Department of Labor is having difficulty with the backlog of cases by mm-hmm. states are having that. And also there's been fraudulent claims, and that's nothing unusual. That happens all the time, but it's challenging for them to sort of separate out all, all the noise. We're, we're seeing infections go up, we're seeing closures or, or capacity restraints on some businesses. So when, when you have that, and, and it's important to remember that we talk about these jobs like restaurants and hotel workers. 56% of renter households make $50,000 or less per year. Um, so these are, these are the jobs. These are retail jobs. These are restaurant mm-hmm. jobs. And so seeing those unemployment claims stay this high mean, means that there are some of our residents who are going to have uh, more financial difficulties going forward. And that's obviously going to impact rent collections and the industry as a well. whole.
0: And many households have benefited from from federal help to pay rent and utilities because of these job losses. But these monthly payments ran out in July. So savings have been an important source for, for many consumers to pay for everything they need over, over the past few months. What can you tell us about American savings?
1: Do they still have savings? They do. They do, thankfully, because you're right. They They have been using them for not just rent payments, but utilities, groceries, uh, schooling, etc. Um, we know that for about five years before the pandemic, savings averaged between seven to nine percent. That, that was pretty standard. They shot up to 33 percent in April, which is just astounding. <laughs> and they've wow. since come down, I know, they've since come down to around 13.6 um, percent in October. So the good news is it's still elevated, the bad news is we're, we're seeing that come down. So if, if we don't get more stimulus, we could expect that to come down further.
0: Most economists agree that there's an absolute necessity for another round of fiscal stimulus. How much more stimulus might be needed to sustain the economy?
1: The consensus seems to be somewhere between one and two trillion, which is actually a really large range when you think about it. Um, but Moody's analytics, they have their baseline forecast. And in that forecast, it assumes that there is a $1.5 trillion package. And when you look at that and you think about the fact that Moody's is forecasting GDP to get back to uh, pre-pandemic levels by the end of next year, but the labor market not until 2024. And that's with the $1.5 trillion package. So that's how important it is. And, um, you know, it's it's as we heard today that Congress isn't going home for the holiday until they get something done. So hopefully that's true. It's certainly not going to be as as big as we'd like to see it. But I think any economists are going to be happy with anything that gets passed.
0: I agree. What can you tell us about home prices in 2020? How has demand impacted home prices?
1: They have, um, they've just been rising, going through the roof really. There's a couple, there's several measures and there's a couple of groups that actually um, um, produce data on home prices. But if you look at the SNP Case-Shiller Index, that's one that's quoted quite a bit. Home prices were up 7% in September and that was the highest um, in that data series since 2014. And it's really hard to, to not, when you talk about prices, demand is obviously important, but you can't leave out the supply and and you can't leave out the costs of um, building, which have been going up as well. Materials costs, especially lumber, and and the supply. So you know those demand and supply forces working against each other. But right now, mm-hmm. the National Association of Realtors um, is saying that at the current pace of home sales, there's only two and a half months of homes left on the market, um, which is which is the lowest they've ever seen since they've been doing this data series. So um, and and also. The average home right now is on the market for 21 days, which is an, another low, um, a high for that market. But um, NER has never seen it that low.
0: And what can you tell us about multifamily permitting activity? How does it compare to single-family permits?
1: Yeah, the permitting, that's another series, data series that's up and down a lot. It's very volatile. But for the past few months, we have seen multifamily permits moderating quite a bit. And actually, in October... They were at their lowest level since early 2016. Um, it's not unusual. We've had a lot of new supply this year, and you know, even despite all the um, construction delays, we still have quite a bit delivered, um, you know, relative to other years. So it's it's common when there's a lot of supply for developers and planners to just kind of hit the pause button, see how that shakes out, see how that gets absorbed. Single family, on the other hand, um, they, they topped a million. Um, permits for the third month in a row, and we haven't seen that since 2007. So we're seeing a lot of figures around the single-family market that we haven't seen since before the last housing crisis.
0: And what are your expectations when it comes to first-time buyers? How hard is it for people to become homeowners?
1: Yeah, right now, we're still seeing, actually, um, the NAR stats show that for October sales this year compared to last year, 32% were first-time buyers last year it was 31%. So they're still out there. And this is, again, um, typically it's been the older millennials that are, and, and this was happening before the pandemic. And I can't stress that enough. So, so this was a trend in place. This is something we knew was coming. Um, uh, lots of folks transitioning to homeownership. They're having more children. They need more space, et cetera. But, but if we continue to see these prices soaring, we are seeing some highs in prices, month after month, they're going up. And also if we see these savings dwindling, so savings are also being used for down payments. Um, so I think we can really, I, I, I expect that it's gonna be more and more challenging for those first time home buyers um, to buy homes. And also that tied with that, that renting is gonna become a more affordable choice in many options across the country.
0: You mentioned earlier that the single-family housing market is under the spotlight, having hit records across many indicators this year. The need for more space and and for intimacy prompted many households to to enter the single-family housing market. Some have rented, some have bought such properties, but one thing is for sure, homebuyer demand showed no
1: signs of letting up. Do we expect
0: this trend to continue?
1: I do, actually. Um, but again, given those constraints we, we just talked about, the supply and the price increases, I just can't see how it can continue for long. Um, the other thing that's important to remember is, is um, there are a lot of people buying second homes right now. A lot, so you know you're in your you're in your apartment, and maybe you don't want to give up your apartment. So we've talked, you know, we've talked about buying a vacation home. Let's do it now. So we we do see that. So that's also part of the demand um, for single family homes.
0: Most specialists agree that we're having a K-shaped recovery. What does this mean for the multifamily industry?
1: Yeah, the case shape is is I feel like I've said concerning almost as much as other people have said. I'm <laughs> but it is concerning. Um, it's um you know it's basically like we talked about earlier. Um, people that can work remotely from home are, are doing fine. People that have our service workers who are um, deal with the public a lot. Are, are not so fine. So when you look at, and, and of course, the K means that those of us that can continue to work will um, will thrive. And those of us who can't work or who go back to work and then get sent home again because of the so pandemic. There's a the really, widening gap. Exactly. There is a widening gap. So I actually looked at some wage data. And when you look at um, Professional services, professional and business services, these are things like lawyers and accountants and engineers. Their their wages are median wages from the BLS around um, $27 and then $33 rather. Finance and insurance, similar work from home type of thing, $27. And then you go to the arts and entertainment industry. These are all the people who aren't going to concerts, people who aren't going to theaters to do their jobs anymore. $14 Mm -hmm. an hour. And the average re- median retail wage, 13, and restaurants, $11.48. Such a big so, difference. Yeah. And then, you know, we said earlier that, you know, 56% of renters are, are earning below $50,000 a year. So these, the K is certainly affecting our residents, and um, it's concerning.
0: Do you expect the election results to impact the multifamily industry in any
1: way going forward? It's really gonna depend on this, um, the Georgia runoff. So if we have a split, so if um, Republicans win that race, uh, we will have a split Congress and we really wouldn't expect huge impacts from that because it, typically uh, Democrats are are more open to regulations and more restrictive policies, but with a split Congress, that would get blocked by the Senate. Now, if the Democrats win the Georgia elections, then we need to be concerned because, as I said, it, it's <laughs> typically that they're less business-friendly. Um, they do like seeing more regulations, so we would be concerned about the supply side. Um, some of them are, um, you know, more—they're more prone to believe in in damaging policies like rent control. So, I do think. We would have some, and certainly our government affairs team would would have some challenges over the coming years. But I do want to point to an upside of a new administration that's um, coming in, is that they're very likely to be more immigration friendly. So we've seen the number of immigrants falling over the past several years, immigrants coming to the U.S. And if those numbers increase, um, immigrants make up a very large renter cohort. So according to the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies, if you move here, and if you moved here less than five years ago, 83% of those immigrants are renters. 83%. That's a huge number. Huge number. Yes. And that only that only goes down to 70% if you're in the country between five and 10 years. And then even between 10 to 20 years, 57% of those folks are renters. So we have some good things potentially coming up. Um, on the demand side, regardless of, of who's in office. You just
0: mentioned that 2021 will be challenging and maybe not 20—not just 2021, but also next year's. Um, how are apartment owners and operators preparing for next year?
1: Yeah, we asked that in, in our, our, la- our final survey, um, the final COVID survey a couple months ago, they are budgeting for Increased costs, so expenses are increasing, and you're still buying cleaning supplies and PPE. This is, We're all hopeful about the vaccine, and people are getting inoculated as we speak. And it's very exciting, but the pandemic's not, it's not going to go away within a matter of weeks or months. So they're going to have these costs. They are also budgeting for capital expenditures, and increase in those, looking at touchless technology, package systems, et cetera. And I think really just and and also they're expecting to see increased vacancies, increased concessions, decreased revenue. So I think they're just really planning for some belt tightening just to get them through bumpy times. And I think we're we're going to probably bump along the bottom a bit into 2021, but overall really emerge stronger. As I mentioned um, smaller owners earlier. And I think they're, they're really embracing the technology and just more efficiency. So I think on the other side, um, we're going to look pretty good.
0: Despite how all headwinds, where will demand for multifamily come from in 2021?
1: Yeah, I think it's coming from COVID fatigue. So we have <laughs> 26.6 million young people living with their parents right now. It's actually the first time, this is a a statistic from the Pew Research Center, it's the first time since the Great Depression that the majority of people between 18 to 29 years old are living with their parents. That is a lot of pent-up demand. So these people um, maybe lost their jobs or maybe they can work remotely and so they just decided to, to go back home and live with their family. And, and they're not gonna wanna do that forever. They're, they're, as, as cities start opening up and we start seeing the amenities come back and you can go to sporting events and the theater and restaurants and bars and jobs start coming back, that's obviously a big driver of demand. I, I think we're gonna see that pent up demand from the COVID crisis um, um, really contribute to um, family coming back in 2021.
0: So considering all these, when do you expect things to go back to normal, to, to that normal we knew before the pandemic?
1: Yeah, that's that's tough. So I think, I mean, we're seeing the, just the beginnings of, of what the vaccine has been doing. I think people are very hopeful. Um, a year from now, Laura, I think we're gonna look almost normal. <laughs> Not quite yeah, yet. Yeah, let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, but you know, remember, it's not just we're, we're a global society, we're a global economy. So it's not just that we have these vaccines and they're so astoundingly effective. It's, we have to take them. We have to trust them. We have to take them in the US. We have to take them in other countries. And I, that's gonna take a long time. And, and, and I, I've read things where it's not gonna be a, a switch. Like it's not gonna be a switch and everything's gonna go back to normal. So you have there's these big structural changes happening too. And that's one of the reasons I don't think things, things may never look quite the same again, but um, it's not just the work from home, it's technology. The labor force is changing. There are people who paused, um, either, either they were laid off or furloughed, or they decided to, to put a pause on working because they were homeschooling their kids, or maybe they accelerated their retirement that they were going to do later down the road. So those jobs, if those jobs come back, you're not going to, nec- not going to necessarily have the same workers to fill them. So I think there's going to be a lot of shifts in the lab- labor market. And um, but I really do think, and not to mention behaviors and attitudes, but I think a year from now, we're going to be, we're going to be hopefully looking back and um, looking at almost normal.
0: Let's keep our fingers crossed. Yes. Well, Paula, thank you very much for taking the time to be part of our podcast series.
1: Thanks, Laura. Appreciate it.
0: I'm looking forward to our next audio meeting. Until then, stay safe and visit multihousingnews.com for the latest news on residential real estate.